Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. In this week's episode, Livewire co-founder James Marley sits down with Catherine Alfrey, Principal and Portfolio Manager at Wavestone Capital, a $4.8 billion funds management firm that she co-founded in 2006. They'll discuss the attributes of companies with superior DNA. She shares her views on some sectors experiencing tailwinds. And she explains how she's working to bring more women to investing in Australia. If you're loving the rules of investing, then why not tell someone about it? Pick your favourite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast and therefore the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. We'll be returning to our regular scheduling later this week, where I'll be back with an episode featuring Anton Tagliaferro, founder of Investors Mutual and a legend of the Australian investment industry. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Maybe we'll start from the beginning. Yeah, okay. Did I read correctly that you, you originally did some work experience as a school teacher? Is that correct? <laughs> so it's interesting because um, my mother wanted me to get become a kindergarten teacher and I enjoyed being with children and I have three kids of my own, so I, I love children. Um, but I did do that and I was just brain dead. So I did the week experience and went, no way. And then my father said to me, well, why don't you try stockbroking? And so I went and did a week's stockbroking experience at Nevitz in Brisbane and loved it, absolutely loved it and thought, right, that's it. That's what I want to do. So I did economics at university. Can you remember, is there anything about that first week in a stockbroking firm that, what was it that caught you? What was, what gave you the bug? I think it was because it it was a fast moving environment. Um, It was loud. Um, You had to actually uh, read things really quickly, you know, digest the information. You could see that, you know, money was being made. I think the whole thing just gave me an absolute buzz. And, you know, I I really just loved it from the outset. And then they said to me, oh, you really seem to enjoy this. Why don't you go down to Sydney? And I actually got to go on this ASX um, floor before it was closed, you know, just as a student, like age 17, and just went, wow, this is amazing. That was the loud cry. I mean, of course, that doesn't happen now, but um, that was another experience in itself. Yeah. And, um, you know, now you've you've gone from that experience, you said you studied economics at university. Yep. Um, What was your starting point in funds management? So I started off in banking, right, and then when I came back, from London, um, I was working over there for Credit Suisse in their you know, financial control office for a while and then came back here and a friend of mine actually rang me up and said, I've just gone for a job at SBC Australia, right? And I'm in marketing, I'm on a really good salary, I don't want to take the pay cut, but they're looking for someone like you who's had some experience but, you know, pretty cheap to hire. And um, so I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. So I came down, had a meeting, and it was with um, Owen Evans as his assistant analyst. And Russell Abood was mm-hmm. the um, head of equities at the time. Shane Finnamore and yeah. Angus Murnahan were on yeah. the desk. Andrew Rennie, who's head of Goldman's now, they're all there. Um, and even Mark Steinert, he was in research, you know, now the CEO of Stockland. Mm. He was covering property trusts right. in the research department. 
So it was amazing. You a know. bit of a breeding ground. Oh, yeah. It was a real breeding ground. And, um, and that was really interesting too because SBC Australia at the time was huge in fixed interest. So we sort of had that whole trading floor um, mentality. And again, I was only, there was, you know, two women on the floor in the equities team. I was the second one. And I walked in and went, wow, what have I done here? You know, because it was so male. Yeah. Um, but no, I loved it. I loved it. That gender diversity issue is something that you've, you've said is, is personal for you. Yep. Ten um, percent female representation in the in the front office of funds mm. management. Mm. Um, how do you start to? How can? How do you think change can be made? And what do you think stopping more women getting involved in, in funds management? I think what's stopping it, it's sort of on both sides, right? The, the turnover in the industry. Once you're in this industry, most people love it, right? So you almost have to be get pushed out okay, for not performing mm. as to why you get pushed out of this industry. Um, so this turnover is very low, right? And I even look back, you know, we tried to hire someone, you know, four or five years ago and we put an ad out there on, on Seek trying to find someone. And I think of the 170 applications, we only had seven women, right? So I don't think there's a real understanding. I think when people think of funds management, they think of shows like Wolf of Wall Street or Billions. They don't actually understand, you know, what is the day-to-day -day, um, job and tale of a fund manager. Um, and so what we've been trying to do about it is um, a group of fund managers and industry funds have come together uh, under the banner of Future Impact, and we're trying to get more women um, to come into the industry from a graduate level. So we know that 50% of finance graduates are women, so why can't we get more of those graduates to come into the funds management industry? And that's what we're encouraging. And the interesting thing is that even since that started, which was only two years ago, we're starting to see the slow change occurring and new, you know, new women coming in, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. A question for you that um, if I was a student considering uh, what options I have, or I've got, I've got mm. young kids as well, where do I, I think about where would I like them to have a career or what would be a potential career option for them? Mm. As we sit here today, there's actually um, a number of markers that suggest that funds management and active managers are having a, a really testing time. Yep. Do you think that the industry long term, um, you know, if you go and speak to these young women leaving university, that you can put together a compelling case for the, for the health of the active management industry long term? Oh, that's a really interesting question, James, <laughs> because this always happens, I think, late in the cycle, late in the equity cycle. Yeah. Um, active managers always tend to be focused on the valuations, whereas the momentum keeps travelling, right? And if you think about it, you know, the bottom of the market was March 2009. Here we are in 2019 and we've had a few wobbles, but I think that's part of the issue. Um, and I also don't think, if I look back a year ago, right, and work out what we were thinking then versus today, I don't think anyone predicted that the 10-year, you know, Australian bond would be yielding less than 1%. Yeah. No one predicted that, right? So to outperform in the last 12 months, you've had to be, you know, long growth, long REITs, long gold, you know. Long bonds. Long bonds, yeah. you know, the bond proxies, yeah. So it's just been a very unusual set of events in the last 12 months. So I think, you know, still give the active guys their go. You know, over the long term, we've outperformed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I still think there's a place for us. I think it's a fair question, though. Oh, it's definitely a fair question. Um, and we're, we're at Livewire, we are leveraged to the active manager and we're, you know, as a, you know we're a platform yes. where they have a voice. But I just think it's an interesting, it's a, you know, it's one of these things, the, the length of the cycle is something that people, I think, are being surprised. As you say, you turn back, 
I look yeah. at articles that were coming onto the platform 12 months ago. Yeah. How do you feel? It feels late in the cycle. Yeah. 12 ma- months on. on. Well, it feel, still feels really late. Yeah. And I think people have been surprised at how elongated this cycle has been. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And also, I mean, obviously we had the fourth quarter was terrible. Yeah. And we all thought, oh, well, here we go. It's going to begin of the, you know, the end. But bang, we did the power pivot in January and some stock market's up 20%. Yeah. So... It's very sort of volatile times, and that normally happens towards the end, you know, of a cycle. But the problem is we've got such a supportive interest rates and we've got central banks that sort of got the stock markets back. So if we can just sort out Trump and Xi and the trade war, we'll be right. (laughs) So we're going to get into your cycle views in a bit more depth in a second. Just back to gender. Yes. And gender equality. Um, What do you think, from the funds management perspective, the compelling reasons for uh, young women to consider a career in, the in, in this industry. Yeah. Look, I absolutely love this job, right? You come to work every morning, you never know what is going to be happening, right? You get to mix with some of the smartest people in Australia, you know, in terms of the corporates and the CEOs, CFOs, the heads of different divisions. You get to challenge them on their strategies and where they're going. You get to travel overseas you know, at least once a year is what I would do, um, either to China or the US or Europe. Um, you know, it's just an, a compelling job and you're actually thinking all the time, right? Um, so it's such a buzz. And then you're making money and you're looking after your, your clients and the, you know, and the investors' interests in the long term. And you're sort of at the forefront too of change, you know, whether it be in that whole ESG space as well and, um, what's happening with remuneration of um, corporate executives, um, all these different topics that you get to think about. And then it's also like the long-term things like, you know, what's going to be the impact of um, electric vehicles, you know, all those sort of things. It's just one of those jobs. It's uh, amazing and you get paid to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that um, the exposure to the, the listed companies that you get, I mean, yeah. there are some really impressive people leading Innovative listed companies. I think yes. that must be one of the things that that access to the top level is amazing. Yeah, totally. Um, in terms of your own experience and how you invest, yeah, has there been someone or a school of thinking that has had a strong influence on on how you invest and how would you articulate that? Okay, so I was after leaving SBC, I went into funds management, right. And I've always sort of been on the growthy or the growth at a reasonable price in terms of the way I like to invest. And I started off and made the wrong career choice. I went into a company called Prudential, which eventually got taken out by Colonial. And at the time, they were growth investors. And they moved um, within six months of me being there to a value mindset and like deep value. And it was an edict out of London that this is what they were doing. And I just went, wow, what have I done, right? And it was all on price to book in terms of how they picked stocks. And that was it. And I was just going, oh, my God, what have I done? And someone said to me, put your head down, keep working. You're young enough. Someone will, you know, pick you and you'll be fine. Anyway, I went to a Wes Farmer's dinner. I'm sitting at this Wes Farmer's dinner. This guy sits next to me and I started talking to him. And we started talking about politics. We started talking about corporates. And then we started having heated arguments about stocks and, you know, all of that. And I didn't know who it was, right? But it was Greg Perry. So Greg Perry and Ian Harding, who were the two heads at um, Colonial First State of Equities. And, and Greg, is, Greg Perry is regarded as one of the master yeah, masters. exactly. Yeah. Total master. And it was sort of the late 90s, 1998. And I got a phone call from a headhunter a few weeks later 
said, Greg would like to come and have a chat. You know, he's looking for a new analyst. Can you find that combative young lady that I was at the Wes Farmers dinner? Exactly. And so that was just a tremendous time. You know, Chris Cuff was running, it was first date then, right? And then we had Pac-Man and Peter Smedley buying all these acquisitions. And then so the business sort of built up in terms of funds under management. Then Commonwealth Bank took us over in 2000. Yeah, so it was just one of those times. And so Greg sort of instilled in all of us about his way of investing um, and looking for those growth companies at a reasonable price and looking for those, we called it GDP plus at the Mm -hmm. time. So looking for those companies that can grow their earnings faster than the economy. Um, And so he, he sort of... So between Ian, um, to give him credit as well, Ian Harding, who was also the colonial first state, took over from Greg, but he was the two I see to um, Greg at the time. He had a big passion for infrastructure. So we were one of the you know lead fund managers at the time that you know bankrolled a lot of those um, Hills Motorway, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that long duration investing as well. So look over the horizon. Um, so we learnt those sort of um, I guess traits from Greg and Ian. Yeah, interesting. Now, Wavestone, is, yes. you're a partner. This is yes. your own boutique. Yep. Um, and you have two business partners, I understand. Yes, that's right, in Granberg and Rasbia. Yep. Um, so how did you meet them? How did it start? And what's the journey been like with Wavestone, having gone from a, a big shop like Colonial yep. to, to deciding to the catalyst to do your own, your own uh, firm? Yeah. So Graham was also at Colonial First State, and so was Raz, mm-hmm. right? So uh, Graham was already there when I got there. So we've worked together now for over 20 years. Um, so we've all sort of grown up in that same, you know, way of investing. And then Ian Harding, Graham and myself started Wavestone in 2006. And we wanted to do like a long, short, absolute return focus fund, which is what we launched with. But then along came the GFC, right? And, you know, it was obviously a terrible time for investing and in, um, particularly long, short funds, given that the market you couldn't even short. Mm. Um, but as a result, uh, we went through that period and we joined up actually with Challenger at the time. So they have a 32.5% interest in Wavestone, which was great to have a big brother behind us during those GFC years. And then it's, it was sort of very a long, slow burn because, you know, obviously recovery from the GFC and then we um, launched a, a new a couple of new products. But then Ian uh, indicated that he wanted to retire from the business. And so we went through sort of like this succession event where Raz left Colonial and joined us at Wavestone and then the three of us went forward. And up until then, we really hadn't done anything in the institutional landscape. So we launched into the institutional sort of long only, as they say, um, part of the market and then also a retail Uh, more retail products as well. Mm -hmm. So from there, we've just grown successfully. We've had obviously very good performance backing that um, during that time when we've been able to sell that track record. Um, So we've built a nice business now where we have, you know, retail, um, about $800 million in retail and about $4 billion in uh, institutionals. Great. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Um, Let's get into the the market view. And I've had a look at... um, uh, the the different products that you've got and yeah. and and one of them you really clearly state you make a, a um a big statement about what your market exposure has been to yes. generate returns so yes. trying to generate returns by and but dialing back or reducing the amount yeah. of the 
the yeah. market volatility or the yeah. market exposure that comes with it. Variable beta. Variable yeah. beta. I, I yes. try to get out uh, of the, the jargon, the jargon <laughs> where we can. Um, but I just want to un- understand, I sometimes find it's a good way to understand your thinking. We've talked about late cycle mm. over mm. the past 24 to 12 mm. months. Could you give me a sense of how you've changed your market exposure, where you've changed your market exposure, and maybe yeah. use that as a bit of a catalyst to tell me how you're viewing this current environment? Yeah, okay. Um, so what we've done, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, is we actually have, in our long funds, we've increased our cash. In our um, long short funds, we've actually, you know, originally we ha- we've sort of gone through a, a net equity exposure range of somewhere between 70% and 87% mm-hmm. in the last 12 months, depending on, because we've gone through that V period, right? Yeah. Um, but overall, now we've we've pulled that exposure. So at the beginning of um, August, we had actually pulled that exposure closer down to seventy percent before this five you know, percent correction we've seen this month. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, we've been a little bit more cautious. The other thing I think we've done, which is different to what a lot of active managers have done, is because what we could see is in terms of the valuation gap on our stocks, um, instead of there being sort of twenty percent upside on things, it was more like five to ten or in terms of the percentage upside that we could see on our valuations. Yep. So for us, it was like, why are we taking such big you know, risks on, at a stock-specific level? So we've dialed down the stock um, exposure. Size. Yeah. Mm. So I think when I look at how we've performed in the last 12 months, yes, we've underperformed, but believe it or not, believe it or not we've underperformed by 1%, um, a little bit more on the long shorts. But the reason we haven't underperformed as much as other active managers and we still remain in that top quartile I think is because we did dial down, you know, in terms of the actual stock specific bets. So you didn't give back as much when things pulled back. Is well, that if you had, well, if some of the stocks obviously are blown up, yeah. right, and so you don't have such a big position, so you might not have two and a half, five percent in one particular stock, and so mm-hmm. if it has come out with a profit warning, it's not going to, you know, impact you as much yep. if you've only got like one or two percent in that stock. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's what's happened to a lot of active managers too, is they've, you know, we're late in the cycle, there's not actually much of a valuation gap, suddenly the company comes down, out with such a, just a slight earnings warning, that's enough to, with when it was training on a high multiple, the reaction has been much bigger and that really can impact you. Yeah. And so you found a way to stay invested but just reducing the, the yeah. position sizes yes. and muting the upside yes. gain but also on the downside. Yes, exactly. Does the... The, the macro picture, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on things that are out of our control, like yes. whether Donald Trump yes. is going to do a big, you know, tweet. China <laughs> tweet or what's happening with the interest rate settings in the central banks in QE. But yep. even in Australia, there's more rate cuts predicted yes. by the market. Yep. What's your take on, on this sort of big picture setting? How does, it, how does it factor into discussions that you have with your team when you're trying to work out how you're navigating from, a, from an investor perspective? Yeah. So we stick to process, um, but what I would say is one of the interesting things is, and it's happened in Australia as well with these interest rate cuts, is prior to the GFC, when we would have interest rate cuts, usually the stocks that outperformed were the economically sensitive companies. Mm-hmm. So it was value stocks, it was small cap stocks, it was cyclicals, right? So they're sort of value bent. Yeah. That hasn't happened this time, right? In a post-GFC world where it's almost investor mindset of, I don't believe that these interest rate cuts are going to drive the economy higher. So therefore, I'm going to go into yield. Or mm. I'm going to you know, go into those stocks in a low growth world that are going to deliver me double digit earnings growth rates. So I've been prepared to pay more for those companies. Mm. That has been the surprising 
you know, phenomenon that's happened post-GFC versus pre-GFC, right? And unfortunately, that's what's happened in Australia in the last few months as well, is that it's been the growth stocks, the tech, the healthcare stocks, and the um, REITs and yielding stocks that have performed really, really well. Mm. It's like a game of chicken. Yeah, yeah. How, how long can you stay invested in those things? It's, um, but I guess the movements that we're seeing, the volatility that you referred to, suggests yes. that investors are quite flighty um, around looking for that change or that inflection point where people move out of those growth stocks. Um, We've seen quite a few examples um, where stocks have been priced at their growth stocks and then they've reminded, com- reminded everyone that actually they're cyclicals, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be a cost of group with the agricultural risk that it's had, you know, that was trading well into the 20s in mm-hmm. terms of a multiple. It's ridiculous for the risk that, you know, could occur with that business and then it obviously has occurred, right? Um, but we've seen it again with companies like Reliance as well. That was a very similar situation um, where people were pricing it like a growth stock and there is a cyclical element to its business. Mm. Um, so we've, you know, we try and spend a lot of time, and there's seven of us in our team, so that's what we do is that bottom-up analysis. And we're only trying to find, you know, 35 or 40 stocks in our portfolio and we're not going to get them all right <laughs> because no one's perfect. But we do do that bottom-up analysis and focus on each individual company and really understand those earnings drivers of those companies. One of the other um, elements of your investment process that I've I've picked up is that you have low turnover. Yep. Can you explain why do you have that approach and how do you source a competitive advantage from having a a low turnover approach or a mindset that that, that lends itself to less frequent trading? Look, I think we... First and foremost, we're investors, not traders, right? So um, I think it's just been an outcome in terms of the turnover. Mm-hmm. Uh, over, over time, that's just the way it has occurred. Um, and we tend to, if we have a profit warning with a company, uh, usually they say the first profit warning's never the last, you know, first downgrades never the last. I know. Um, and so I must say that, that, that we do tend to, you know, all hands on deck and we will, you know, do the deep dive on a particular company if we own it and mm. it's come out with a profit warning. And we'll more than likely give them the benefit of the doubt if it's like some sort of macro shock. But if it's something that's happening within the company, that's when we're, you know, that gets me nervous. Yeah. Um, so we've got a couple of those. We've got to work those through after reporting season. But um, otherwise, uh, we, you know, we just focus on the, bot- on the whole uh, company in terms of the bottom-up is, is there a, a company where... If you take a three or a five year view, which um, you could say you feel like you're thinking decidedly different from from the market or where you you feel like you've identified something that is not being fully factored in. And I think examples of this are are companies that might look really expensive at the moment and people sort of throw them out and say just that valuation never stacks up and maybe you've found something that, that others are not seeing. Look, a recent example of that would be ResMed. Uh, in terms of in January, that stock had an absolute wobble. I don't, you know, stock sort of fell from $17 all the way down. And it was predominantly because they'd done a joint venture with Google um, around data collection. And it was with their new joint venture that they had with Google. And it's like a two year um, uh, project that they were doing with Google. And they ended up spending something about $14 million a quarter, so say $50 million over the year. But people thought that that was in their R&D guidance of around 7% right. of revenue. And the underlying result was fine, but everyone just suddenly went, what is this joint venture and why isn't it within your R&D guidance? And the stock just 
particularly in the US because it's trades in the US, it just got taken out. And so it was one of those examples where, you know, Graham did a lot of, you know, work and said, hang on a minute, you know, putting aside this Google joint venture, this long term will be the right thing for the company and underlying the business is performing really well. And then in April, they came out with their investor day and gave the market some more details about this joint venture with Google. And so the market went, oh, that's a really good idea. (laughs) And then subsequently, the results just come out. Fantastic result. Yeah. The stock's up another 10%. So yeah. it's re- more than recovered from where it was in January. So sometimes you've got to look through um, those times. Well, talking about medical-style businesses, you mm. talk about the, the concept of trying to find companies with good DNA. Yes. Um, or genetic markers is the other thing, thing yep. that you refer to them as. What are some practical examples? Like, t- tell me, tell me okay. a little bit about the process. Yeah, I'll tell you about the process. So, Okay. From those GDP plus days, a colonial first state, and that whole focus around the growth and the company's earnings. So we do believe, in terms of share prices over time, that it's the company's earnings growth coming through that will drive that share price, right? And we do believe we're very valuation focused. So, you know, there are mispricing opportunities that we can take advantage of and we use our, you know, bottom-up modelling to work out the valuations of those companies. And we also really focused on capital allocation in terms of what boards and management team uh, are doing with our capital, mm. right? So they're sort of our overarching principles. And then what we do is we have a quality screen at the front end, which is all qualitative factors. And there's seven factors that sort of talk about the corporate DNA, the superior corporate DNA. Mm-hmm. And then there's eight factors, which are industry sort of porter analysis. Yep. And that decides whether industry is going through a tailwind or a headwind, mm-hmm. right? And they're usually great turning points in terms of what's happening with industries. But it makes our analysts, of which I'm one as well, very focused on what are those 15 markers we've got and what can we mark them off. And of course, the more markers you have out of 15, the higher the quality of the stock oh, it tends to be, okay. right? So before we even look at any valuation or do the bottom-up modelling, that's what we're doing, is putting all those companies and trying to put it through the funnel to look at those, you know, the quality screen and what those companies spit out. Well, so do you want some examples? I was going to say, can we start with the quality, some of the, on, on, the, on the company side, like yeah. the things that you value from a quality perspective? Yeah, yeah. So what we're looking for is companies that, in terms of revenue, on the revenue line, the product or the, or the good or the service that they have, you know, what makes that tick? Are they an innovative company? Um, what, how are they spending in terms of R&D on those, to drive that sales line? Are they spending the right amount of their sales? You know, is it... Not too much, not too, just right, um, to drive that longer term growth, right? We look at obviously management and the track record and the board interaction. We also look at does this company have superior operating margins? You know, vis a vis the other players in the industry, are those operating margins, you know, higher than, and why are they higher, right? Mm. But then we also look at, we realize that, you know, companies don't operate in a vacuum in terms of industry factors as well. So we're looking at those factors, which I can go into as well. Yep. But i just give you some examples on the superior corporate DNA as well. Yep. Um, from a, a company perspective, are there enough, is there enough choice in the Australian market for companies with superior <laughs> DNA or do you have to start making compromise? You do have to compromise a little bit occasionally, I would say. Yeah. Um, but it is a good way of going up and down the quality screen, right? And we generally, you know, the higher the number, the more 
you generally like it in terms of the um, quality of the company. But generally those companies have six or less factors. They're more in your cell or never look at mm. bucket. So it's yeah. a good way of screening them out. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I, I'm interested to know is in terms of market cap yep. spectrum, yep. do you feel like there's a sweet spot for finding a lot of the, the top 20 companies are, are really well known, but they've got there because they have had a good mm. track record, they've been good quality. Mm. Mm. Um, it feels like a lot of the really strong growth is coming from that um, mid-cap. mid-cap part mm. of the market. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to throw this last little piece in here. I know when I was um, reading about your experiences during the GFC, you wanted to move out of owning companies that were too small because you called them lobster pots where <laughs> the liquidity dried up. So yeah. I'm interested, given that you've got this view that we're relatively late in the cycle, Yeah. Is, are you finding a sweet spot for where you want to have the portfolio set in terms of a market cap? Yeah. Well, we don't invest anything under $200 million. Okay. So those really tiny, small cap, we think that's like a specialised, you know, investment yep. area. So we don't do that. Um, and we have, you know, what I was saying before about the economically sensitive, you know, small cap stocks, they're just not getting the same boost from the economy as mm-hmm. they once were, right? So unless they've got something special about them, then we're not going to look at them. So we probably dialed down our small cap exposure going back about you know two years ago um, but we still look up and down the spectrum so just because um, you know it's a top 20 stock doesn't mean that we won't look at it mm. um, but yes as you say the outside of the top 20 all the way down to that 150 is really a sweet spot where we look for companies mm-hmm. particularly because at the end of the day a lot of the companies that we do own have gone offshore yeah. Right, so they're sort of like offshore growth companies and they're a leader in their industry. So that's how they've got that exposure. So let's get into it. An example, a, a stock that you have that you believe demonstrates superior corporate DNA. Can you translate it into a, into a real-life example for me? Yeah, sure. So one that we, it's obviously topical today, would be Macquarie Group. Um, that's a company that I've followed for a you know, long period of time. Um, interestingly, it, to start with, the fact that the CEO has actually come from within the company, I think, tells it all and tells a lot about a company if you can, you know, through many years, keep this succession planning going. And, you know, from Alan Moss to Nicholas Moore and now Shamara, mm. um, as CEO of a company, I think that tells you there's something unique about the culture. Yeah. Um, so for us, when we look at that, you know, one of the things we look for too is the employee engagement and the you know the client engagement, and we look at the incentive remuneration schemes around that. And mm-hmm. clearly, you know they they are paid very well at Macquarie, but they are paid to deliver, um, and they've got very strong alignment with shareholders, which is what we like as well. Um, clearly, the way they've gone about their business too. I remember Alan Moss many years ago describing it to me as sort of forty or fifty small businesses that will change over time and hum but they have the same capital discipline around them. And it's been interesting to watch Macquarie over many years develop that you know, industry global leader in that infrastructure space, um, both from a um, actual corporate side of consulting, um, as well as an investor in infrastructure and an owner, a co-owner, a manager of funds. You know, that whole mirror business has been an absolute stellar success story yeah. uh, for Macquarie. Great. Um- They've announced, the, for context of viewers, they've yeah. announced a capital raising yeah. today. Yes. Um, do you ha- can you give us a, a sense on what your initial assessment of it was? 
Look, initially I went, oh, is this top of the cycle? Because let's face it, um, I still remember with Macquarie <laughs> um, raising money uh, September 11th. They had a capital raising for $35, and I still remember that um, going on. And then they did it in 2007. Um, but more recently, they have tapped the market, you know, a couple of times for acquisitions, Asanda and aircraft leasing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not surprised they're doing it again today. Um, and interestingly, they have called out that they've found another $1.6 billion of opportunities this quarter in which to invest or co-invest in the infrastructure space, renewables and technology areas. So the fact that they're actually investing the money and not just saving it for a rainy day, I think is a positive. Yeah. Um, There are lots of reasons to be bearish out there, um, and I'd like to move away from that and focus on some positives. Yeah. What are some of the, you know, we're fresh full of information from reporting season. (laughs) You've got to figure out, you've got to make sense of it. What are some of the positives that you're seeing out there at the moment? What are some of the tailwinds and the opportunities? Yeah, like going through them, like infrastructure is clearly one that continues um, to get support. Mm. And that's primarily, I think, too, because in Australia, you know, population growth is still growing at 1.6%, right? And we've still got congestion in the cities. And so, you know, companies like Transurban, Sydney Airport are still benefiting Mm. um, from this whole urbanisation and, um, you know, population growth that's occurring. And then leading on to that would be the tourism sector. So continuing like Aussie dollar at 67 cents, you know, that's just clearly positive for offshore tourism. If they can afford it. And probably <laughs> domestic tourism as well. Yeah. Get people stay at home people more stay, likely. You know, exactly. Staycation. exactly. So that's very positive. Um, you've got to find ways to play it. That's the problem. It's you always know, been in a bit market. short. Education and yes, tourism education. have always been quite yeah. limited opportunities. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, we've been investors in IDP education for a long period of time. We did sell about uh, three months ago. So we've sort of ridden that wave and we're out of that stock. But that's obviously been clearly one that's benefited from the 15% per annum growth in that whole education mm. university space. So that's done well. And that's clearly an industry that's experiencing tailwinds as well. Yeah. Um, so, and then beyond that, um, obviously the economy is not performing that well. And then if you go through the sort of the big barbells in terms of resources and financials, that's still doing it tough. And now you've got commodity prices falling away on the resources side as well. Uh, so that's going to be harder. One of the things that's happened on the back of the RBA cutting rates is that it feels like residential housing after a couple of years of sliding down feels like it's getting at least a bounce of some description at the moment. Mm. Um, It's a big part of the economy. Mm. Um, Construction employs a lot of people. Have you got a a view on, on what's happening in that space? House prices are definitely positive, right? And you've seen that, some glimmer of hope. Um, and the sentiment, the clearance rates, um, the listings are still negative. Uh, but I think when we've spoken to domain and real estate.com AU management, they've said if we can see the turnover happening at the suburb level, that should encourage more listings. Uh, but then on the housing construction, look, the multi-dwelling, I think that's going to be in the downward um, yeah, cycle crooked, for a while. Yeah. yeah. And I think the problem is that the banks still haven't supported that side of the market whilst they're supporting a little bit but they're still under quite a lot of macro prudential control on the mortgage side i still think there's going to be some issues in terms of the property development side that'll take some time so more like 2021 not in the next 12 months okay all righty we're up to the gory part of the discussion um 
we love hearing war stories, and as you've said multiple times, you yeah. don't always get them right. No. Um, I just love to hear a, a lesson, and the more detail, the better. Oh, okay. Something that's ta- taught you a, a difficult lesson, um, what happened, and how's it made you a better investor today? Okay. So, I mean, I've got so many stories, um, the good and the bad. But <laughs> <laughs> look, one that sticks out to me, 3P learning, which a lot of people wouldn't know, but it's, and it's still listed today. Just and it's basically an education software business. We didn't invest in it at the IPO, which happened in 2014, but we did invest in 2015. But coming back, I guess, to process in terms of that whole board and management team and how they get on. And so what happened was they came out with a result. The result was reasonable, but then with the result, basically the chairman and the board sacked the founder CEO who'd been there for 11 years driving this business. And I think at the time they had 5 million students, you know, 18,000 schools globally, and you know, the business was ticking along and it was fine. But to wake up one day and bang, you know, the, the CEO is gone, who'd been there for 11 years driving this whole, you know, strategy, it was just like such a shock. But it, the important lesson it taught me, and increasingly I see it a lot, you know, now having the access to that board level, is the relationship between management and board is quite crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I did, I'm totally misread that. I didn't know that there was even a problem between the CEO and the board. Was there a, did something go wrong with the stock itself, with the stock price? Did it? Oh, stock price tanked. Right. Like, oh, it was down 30%. Just on that one piece of Just news? Just on that news. Right. Just on that news. Because the CFO got put in as interim C, you know, CEO. They then went on for a global search to find a new person and, yeah. It was horrific. We had, you know, meetings with the chairman, and yeah, it was just a terrible time. Do you think you would? Have, was there? Did you miss signals? I mean, it sounds like a really hard one to pick up. Yeah, I guess it is. It was a hard one to pick up, but I think it made me realise that actually you do got to meet as many people as possible as you can within a company, and and continue to, um, you know, maintain that relationship and understand more about the company mm-hmm. um, in terms of the, you know, in-depth understanding between, you know, uh, the whole board and the management team and understanding that relationship. Yeah. You've got three kids. Yes. What lessons about investing have you taught them or will you talk them? <laughs> teach them? Oh, I think some days, some days they, uh, they're really interested in who I've met, you know, today. And then other times they're like, oh, mum. You just look, you know, too tired and too stressed. Um, what would I teach them about investing? Uh, right. I would teach them to be patient. I would teach them to be diversified. Um, I would teach them about the fact that, you know, companies' uh, share prices over time grow with the company's earnings. So try and understand what are those one, two, three earnings drivers, those key earnings drivers behind that um, profit line, what's driving that profit line. Um and then I would also teach them because at the end of the day, we're still very focused on valuation. Um, so I would don't the whole fad and don't get carried away in no. terms of you know a stock price just because everything looks like it's going its way and it's going to the moon. Usually that's a signal to you know sell yeah. uh, and move on, let it have, have a bit of a rest and then move move back in later on if you like it in the share price uh, retreats. But um, yeah, I think the patience, diversification, and the earnings drivers are. Probably three of the keys that I teach them. 
Great. Well, listen, I know it's a really busy time, so yeah. I appreciate you coming in yeah. and speaking to me today. Yeah. Um, it's been great to hear a background to Wavestone and uh, learn about how you invest. So thank you. Thank you, James.